anyone with the name Rain is crazy. Or so I was once told. Although the phrase was said in Turkish, so at first I racked my brain to think of anyone I'd met whose name was Yağmur. I'd not yet had the pleasure of an encounter with a young woman down on the waterfront of Hobart. That was this past January, and there was delight in meeting rain at the height of a dry summer. I wouldn't at all say she was crazy, but misguided, maybe. It was 2am, and her companions were questionable. And next to a kebab van I'd never seen in Hobart before, she told me that she too dreamed of being a writer. Whenever she took acid, she said, she thought she might write poetry. But in truth, she never put any of her verses down. Never picked up a pen at all, really. I gave her some avuncular advice. Keep a journal. Write in it every day, Rain. I love you, she said. (laughs) But that was later. When I first heard that proverb, if that's what it was, I remembered a woman I'd known with the Spanish word for rain as her name, Lluvia. We'd met in the south of Mexico, in Oaxaca, where I'd been given plenty of chances to practice the pronunciation of rain. It had been monsoon season. Every afternoon I found myself cloistered in some cafe or bar for a few hours, waiting for it all to pass. But actually I met Juvia in an undercover market at night when a late cloud burst had left us all crammed in between the stalls. I had no qualms about it. I ate a gelato made from prickly pear fruit in one of the exits. A woman held her baby as if for dear life. An old, old man in a colourful woven cloak looked out at it all wistfully. An ambulance passed us by its howling siren rising with a distorted echo from the wet bitumen. A young lady played with her mobile phone, then got bored, and said hello to me. This was Juvia. Later we met up at a mezcal bar, and then we were going to walk to a nightclub when we got waylaid. For some reason there was a brass band in front of the Santo Domingo church and a small, spontaneous fiesta started up. We've just graduated, one young man called out cheerfully. I swayed around with Juvia. She laughed at me for dancing like a wooden statue. I tried to lean her back like the other youths were, but I messed it up. And then it rained again. Juvia said something I couldn't comprehend. Come again, I said, otra vez. She had her hand outstretched, catching all these drips. She said, I always wish this would never end. They say this spring we're going to have La Nina weather, which means it should be wet and warm. La Nina is a meteorologist's word. I could easily look it up, I suppose. I mean, maybe less easily than most, since I don't have internet connection where I live, but 
you know, give me a few days' notice and I'd figure it out. Anyway, I don't know where it comes from. Just that la niña means the girl in Spanish. And now I realise that when I think of it, I picture this woman, Juvia, with her green-brown eyes, her broad brown face, the rare wide smile that sometimes came from her sneer. I imagine her as a rain goddess, ambivalent and jealous, both threatening and generous. Juvia, La Nina, travelling from the west with dark clouds like bouquets bunched up under her arms. Another night in the monsoon, I left my notebook too near an open window. In the morning, I dried it out, and strange swirls of blurred blue ink decorated some of the pages. On one of them, all that was left was a remnant of conversation I'd had with a linguist. Either a linguist or a mystic, because he said something about fluency, about how ability with languages took on a liquid form. Language is the conduit between the universe and us, he said. Like how streamers of rain run as rivers and nurture the earth. This too makes me think of La Nina, or Duvia, or now that I think about it, Yamur as well. All these crazy women called rain. Fierce, fluent goddesses. The Bureau of Meteorology promised a few days of rain. Now for those who frequently check their forecasts, you start to get strong responses to their iconography. The little cartoon cloud pouring forth diagonal lines makes you instinctively wonder where you're planning to be and if you can't just be indoors for those days. That's what I thought anyway. And I was pleased to realise that I could just retreat into my train carriage and think about rainy days instead of going out into them. Rainy days and rainy nights too, I guess. As one of William Faulkner's characters says, how often have I lain beneath rain on a strange roof thinking of home. Those monsoon nights in Central America eventually convinced me it was time to take a ticket back to Tassie. Not that I was ever weary of the rain. I just envied those at home who had that utmost comfort, being sheltered in your own abode during a storm. This train carriage in which I'm living pretty much sums up all I've ever wanted from my address. Privacy, solitude, quietness, and yet also intimacy with the forest around me 
and its creatures which often enough intrude upon me, and an openness to the weather which sometimes is much louder than any city. As maybe you can tell, when rain comes driving down on the curved corrugated iron that covers the carriage, it is not quiet. It's like a fusillade of metallic drops being fired into my brain. Yet strangely, like the roar of a rushing river, even this noise is never disturbing. It gives the kind of comfort that makes me want to have a kip, to fall headlong into dreams. Now aside from the carriage, here there's a cottage where I keep a few things and sometimes sleep, and there's the outhouse as well, and none of these are attached, which means I go outside a lot, so rain can sometimes be inconvenient. Yet for me it's invariably a good thing. It often comes as a relief. We've had a reasonably dry winter, and at this time of year any of us who live in the bush, and in a fair few cities too it must be said, have to start to contemplate the fire danger of the coming season. So a good dump of rain might at least make us feel like there's a little more distance between ourselves and disaster. We like to see the soil get a good soaking, and watch the creeks fill up, so that if a spark should land in our neighbourhoods, it might not just go up in a mighty conflagration that burns it all away. I remember coming home in October five years ago. It had been a dry winter while I was away, and spring had started off no better. The paddocks were parched and yellow, and we all knew it was set to be a hot, harsh summer but the bushfires that year were as intense as they'd been in my whole lifetime. And with no rain well into autumn, it was months before some of the blazes could be said to be extinguished. I was guiding in the mountains at the end of the season, the last days of April, and even still it was a week of warm, dry weather up there. Then it was as if a damn wall busted. A few days after my trip, I woke up at a mate's place on Bass Strait. We noticed storm clouds moving in. A sea eagle blown across the span of the farmhouse window in a flash by a great westerly gust. I recall saying that I was glad that I wasn't guiding that week. And we checked the forecast. Furious cartoon clouds, spurting out lines of rain, all in a row day after day. Turns out that two of my mates were up there guiding. They had to rope up their punters to cross newly swollen black creeks. A few walkers fell sick and had to be evacuated. And when I saw one of these mates of mine, the night after the trip, her body was covered in bruises. We ended up having the second wettest year on record even though we'd started with four months of drought. And so it was that the house I was about to move into was evacuated. It was near the confluence of rivers in Launceston. The waters rose and threatened to break the flood levees. I saw the South Esk one afternoon from a safe distance. 
It was fierce, as if intent on ending things, a liquefied apocalypse. But the water didn't breach the river's banks in town, and the house was spared. Yet some nights throughout that winter, when the rain came banging on the rooftop, I thought how demanding the weather's elemental forces can be, and how precariously we live on this dynamic little planet. But tonight I'm trying not to overthink it, and simply to enjoy the peaceful pitter-patter of rain on the train carriage roof. Sometimes when it rained in childhood, we went out and played soccer. My brother, my cousin and I, with one of our friends or neighbours as a fourth player. But they were fairly dispensable. Didn't matter who it was, really, as long as it was someone who was half-decent and the teams were reasonably even. I think we started playing on a makeshift field beyond my cousin's house, which had just been surveyed. There's a suburb there now. We marked out a smallish field with two goals and played for hours. By the end of it we'd churned up the grass and all of us were streaked and spattered with mud. And then we threw my cousin on the ground and rubbed his face in it and shoved mud all through his blonde hair. Understandably, this version of the game was called Rain and Pain. The idea was to make spectacular tackles as much as it was to win. And when that old field was covered with houses, we moved the game to a nearby reserve. The grass was in better nick there, although it didn't drain so well, so gliding into challenge for the ball, you could travel at great speeds as if on an oil slick. It's remarkable that we never broke any bones out there. I suppose after a childhood of wrestling and racing around, we were accustomed to this kind of trauma. We knew how to fall safely and protect ourselves in collisions. Useful skills, really. Later we moved our rain and pain games to the lawns of the Cataract Gorge in Launceston. The drainage there was even worse, which seemed all the better to us. I distinctly recall one match towards the end of winter, a decade ago. We managed to make it four against four, with a cast of other mates filling up the slots in the teams. It was so wet and slippery that it was hard to stand up at all, and we all fell over at frequent intervals. I remember my brother going down as if he'd stepped on a banana peel, his long legs sticking upwards as he came down, arse first. He was nowhere near the ball. Mist rose from the nearby river, creating a gothic backdrop. And we were all shirtless. We wore mud like war paint. And we played until it was too dark to see. This was truly a tremendous sport. Of which we were all champions. 
Around the same era as that match, I went down to the gorge with some mates during an afternoon storm. We had a soccer ball then too, which we kicked about with slightly less intensity. And although it was cold, a handful of us decided to strip down to our undies to swim. Lightning split the sky as we frolicked about in the water. Later we went back to my house, threw blankets and mattresses on the floor and wrestled while Bob Dylan played away on my second-hand stereo. It was a scene I knew then that I would always remember. There was one sad song I always listened to, Boots of Spanish Leather, its lyrics describing letters between a traveller and her ex-lover. Each of us was 18 or 20. It was necessary that most or all of us would leave Launceston eventually. Soon we would be separated, and who would bother to write? I had a recent epiphany in which I realised that I had always cast myself as the lover left behind back then, the sadder voice in that song, when I listened to it alone and on repeat some nights. But now it seems I've more often been the traveller, telling someone or other that I don't know when I'll be coming back again. It depends on how I'm feeling. How many farewells have been said since then? More than I'd have presumed that afternoon. And rainy days like these remind me of certain occasions in which I said my goodbyes in one or another part of the world, sometimes with raincoats rustling, with hints of uncertainty and remorse, as well as expectation and excitement at the change that was ahead of us all, the turning of the earth. Something as simple and elemental as rain brings back memories to our minds. It helps us measure where the years have gone, and imagine time as something like a hydrological system, which all begins in one place, then washes away from us, out to sea. It is only in some beliefs that time turns back on itself, kind of like the water cycle. That's not really for me. But as a thought experiment, I find myself flexing my brain to try and figure out how events in my life might have evaporated. How they might be drawn up into the atmosphere, only to return again somehow back to the earth. I suppose if it does, it probably happens in stories like these. in which I remember those who have passed through storms with me, and in which I figure out what has come out in the wash.
bushwalking brings you outdoors, even when the weather's not so flash. And the sound of rain on the tarpaulin of your tent is exaggerated and amplified by the thinness of the material that's keeping you dry. In theory, at least. There are nights when the tent doesn't withstand the weather. I got caught out on my last night of a three-week hike in Mediterranean Turkey. Summer had just ended in that monotonously stable climate. I was promised I wouldn't see a drop of rain. And indeed it seemed it would be that way. But sitting at a table in a village cafe in Feralia that final night, I saw a heavy purple cloud approaching and chose not to believe my eyes. It burst on the coastline and upon my $20 tent, which buckled immediately, everything was drenched. I ended up curled up in a ball, sleeping clandestine in a nearby barn. A few days later, I recounted the incident to a mate via email. In summary, I said, that night was the winter of my discount tent. No one ever promised rain-free days in Tassie's high country. We're exposed to all sorts of weather that changes dramatically depending on the source, whether it comes from desert sands, the expansive ocean, Antarctic ice, So it was last spring when I went onto the plateau with a botanist mate of mine. Our first day's foray was a long, hot walk uphill. But in the morning our campsite was smothered in fog and then we got hit with heavy rainfall. We each had our own tent and so bunkered down for a bit till tedium defeated us and we decided to head out into the whiteout anyway. We paid careful attention to whatever few landmarks we could see so that we might retrace our steps, then walked west into the wind for a few hours, came back again. They say no man's an island, but when you're swaddled in Gore-Tex, the hood of your jacket over your head, unable to see anything, you certainly feel isolated, even when you're only... 20 feet away from your friend. Meanwhile, my mate was still stooped over looking at the miniature plants he could find on that plateau. With a muffled yell, he called out, This is why they're up here. Later he explained it better as we cooked dinner in the drizzle. There are plants that exist only in the Tassie Highlands simply because their conditions are still similar to the colder, wetter epoch in which they first evolved. So it was worth getting out into the weather then, to observe them in their element. And in the morning the sun came out, and we even managed to dry out some clothes, and then packed down and wandered out. But the weather came back in just as we got to the road, We stuck our thumbs out for a ride from the occasional passing car, but it took a fair while to get a lift. Perhaps it was our look. The long coats covering short shorts. 
a typical Tassie bushwalking outfit, but one that does make you appear a little bit like a flasher. Thankfully, some nice fellas eventually took us down the hill. I had a gig that hour at a little festival in a country town and was clearly running late, so I conjured up a story on the spot about our little outing in the rain and the sorts of things that came into my brain as we walked around the plateau in the wet. In those conditions, I said, you could envision a man coming from the fog, the ghost of an old-timer, an explorer with a long tale to tell. I heard a heckler in the front row. This bloke must have been stoned. Well, no. The truth instead is this. If you let the weather into your imagination, into your ideas, into your bloodstream, you will find it shapes you. Like the sorts of plants my botanist mate is into. You may well begin to adapt into something rare and unlikely. And besides, as a famous Icelandic novelist once wrote, it's nothing but bloody eccentricity to want to be dry all the time. Once in a city very far away, I woke up late and sat with loose acquaintances around a dinner table all day. Outside it was overcast. The sky a depthless and very pale grey, and at no stage could I recognise what hour it was. And the truth is, although the company was gregarious, that day felt like it might go on for weeks, if I wasn't careful. I'm not one to ever expect foreign places to behave like my home, but I was astounded by how monochrome that weather was. This was a well-off city. Even the most impoverished countries I've ever been in have at least had some colourful birds, moss growing between the cobblestones, poppies cracking through the pavement. I wondered, what do these people live off all winter? And now, looking through the double doors of the train carriage, those tall panes of glass framed by gingery wood, I see a sky of the same uninspiring shade. But beneath it is an array of colours. Plenty of green, of course. Rain and green correspond. They have an affinity. It is one of the finest friendships in nature. There are miniature tussocks of grass, sedges and short rushes sticking up like mosques' minarets, a couple of young eucalypts with fresh leaves that look sallow and sweet, cutting grass bushes are bouquets of blonde, grey and green blades. 
The tea tree is a sombre grey-green. In the scrub there is a single unwanted hawthorn, an errant weed, whose regrowth is the most vivid light green in the whole ensemble of viridescence. But I also fancy that I see an interesting selection of pinks and purples, tinges of mauve and lilac, burgundy and mahogany, these in the thick trunks of gum trees, in the stack of faded wood from which I've made my bonfire, even in the track that runs beyond the train carriage, a gravel path that seems to have been laid down using stones that were quarried on Mars. And even if today's the sort of day in which the variegated rosellas are reduced to black silhouettes against the colourless backdrop, there's fluorescent yellow in the understory, the blossom of the prickly Moses. So intense it might be electric. Eventually I left that dinner table, on that hourless day, the one they'd forgotten to measure, and I roved off through the city streets on a borrowed bicycle in search of colour. The mizzle was unrelenting, and I slid round corners and lurched absent-mindedly onto the wrong side of the road, up well-managed waterways, towards the garden allotments, plots of veggie patches which were just starting to come back to life. And there, emerging from the earth, were all sorts of plants coming ripe and rippling with colour. This planet's prowess on display, its dreaming made visible. It was a surplus of life which I sensed I was invited to share, even there. I rode back to the apartment in sodden clothes and greeted those strangers as someone different, as if I too had been nourished like a garden, having drunk deep draughts of the atmosphere's beautiful cocktail. Air. Light. And a good amount of rain. <laughs>